Good morning. Glad you're here to worship with us at Rivermont today and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be studying verses 1 to 19 of Mark chapter 11 today as with Christians all around the world we celebrate Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week when Jesus entered into Jerusalem to do his work of giving his life on the cross and being raised from the dead in the tomb. As Jesus neared Jerusalem for about a year before, he had been traveling all through Galilee. It was the northern regions of Israel, teaching and healing. And that region isn't very large. He just was crisscrossing the area, back and forth, teaching and healing in all the villages. And as he did so, there was a lot of expectation that came about. As Jesus healed and he taught, just like he did in Jericho when he healed Bartimaeus. And then he traveled on the road from Jericho, about 20 miles up to Jerusalem. And it took him not only from Jericho, where he healed Bartimaeus, all the way up to Bethany, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. People were excited. There was expectation that was beginning to build. As together, Jesus and these crowds that followed him came on their way across the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Up till that point, those messianic expectations, Jesus had tried to put them down, tamp them down a little bit, but the time had come. It was time for him to enter Jerusalem for the last week of his life and complete the work that he had come to do. And expectations upon him in the city were very high. Would he meet them? I wonder if he meets our expectations of him today. Let's look at Mark 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Then say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, Why, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves where it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. 
And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today. As we celebrate your coming into the city of Jerusalem to be the Lamb of God given for our sin, we ask that you would open our hearts to see it afresh this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Perhaps one of my favorite of the Narnia series of books by C.S. Lewis is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I love the adventure of the crew that's on the ship and all the things that they get into. And near the end of the story, if you've read it, Lucy and Edmund note in the distance there's a large grassy meadow that they would like to explore. And they get a little bit closer to it and they see in that grassy meadow there's a white speck against the green. And and that white speck just seems to draw them closer and closer and closer. And when they get near to it, they begin to see that this white speck is a lamb. And that lamb is cooking a breakfast of fish. And he offers it to them and shares the breakfast with them. And Lucy and Edmund had had never known such a delicious meal. They had never been satisfied quite so deeply at breakfast before. Lucy and Edmund began to talk with this lamb about how they might find their way to the land of Aslan. If you know the stories, you know that Aslan is the Christ figure and his land is an image of heaven where God dwells together in peace with his people. And the more Lucy and Edmund talked to this lamb, the more they looked, they began to see something strange was happening to him. The lamb began to transform, as Lewis wrote it this way. His snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. This tiny gentle lamb had transformed before their very eyes into this powerful and majestic lion. And just a bit later, this lamb who had become the lion would once again become the lamb who was gentle and served them. When they looked at it one way, he looked one way. Upon a second and even third look, they saw even more about the character of Aslan himself. What a picture that is for us For Palm Sunday. Because Palm Sunday is a story about the lamb who became the lion who became the lamb. He was the lamb who entered into the city to take away our sin. But he's also the lion of Judah who protects and rules and calls us to holiness. But he's also the lamb who forgives our sin and washes us away and washes our sin away in tender shepherding. These three stories in the story of the Palm Sunday tie together a couple of scenes that enable us to see more fully what Jesus has really come to do. He is the lamb who has become the lion who has become the lamb. How do we see that in this story? Well, first we see what we usually call the triumphal entry. And I suppose it is a triumphal entry in a sort of way. Triumphal entries were what kings would do when they conquered a city. When they had won a battle, they would ride atop a stallion, atop a war horse, and ride in, in power, go into the city they had just conquered. It was a raw demonstration of all my might and my ability. And they would carry behind them on ropes and in chains the captives that they had won in their battles. That was a triumphal entry. But it doesn't quite fit here, does it? doesn't sound much like a triumphal entry, but instead of that, what we really see is the lowly entry, the humble entry of the Lamb. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And it was a young donkey, and it was a borrowed young donkey at that. You might know from antiquity that donkeys, rather than being impressive vehicles of war, were ridden to communicate peace. In times of peace, especially from King David on, when a ruler entered a city and he wanted to communicate blessing, he wanted to communicate peace, then he would enter on it upon the back of a donkey. And that's exactly what the prophecy in Zechariah 9 says about the Messiah who was to come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. But this king on that day came announcing peace and he didn't even have his own donkey to ride. He had no instrument of peace to offer to the city other than himself, that is. And he didn't process with all of his captives that he had won in war behind him, did he? But instead he led a captive train of the blind and the lame and the broken who had been not captured, but who had been set free by a Savior, by a Lamb who had come to be a shepherd, who had come to forgive them of all of their sin. He is a Lamb who has come in a lowly entry into the city to announce peace. Many people wonder about so much detail included about how they got the donkey. Some people think that it was a demonstration of Jesus' miracle-working power. He could see into the future and know that there would be a donkey tied to this post in, in, in Bethpage, and they just were supposed to go get it. Other people suggest that the owner of the donkey was in Jesus' traveling group. In verses 3 and 6 of the text, we see that he sent them ahead and told the advance team to say, if anyone asks you about it, tell them that the Lord needs the donkey. Another way to understand it is to say, its Lord needs it, meaning the owner of the donkey was with Jesus and they had need of it. We aren't sure. But trying to figure out the reason for the donkey really misses the point. How they got it really doesn't matter. The point in verse 2 was that this was a donkey upon which no one had ever sat. And all those details about how they came by the donkey were simply there to prove that this one was a donkey that everybody knew no one had ever ridden. Why? From Deuteronomy 21 and Numbers 19, they tell us that animals that were to be used for sacred duty were never to have been put to any ordinary use. And here was a donkey... An unridden donkey who was to be put to a ceremonial and a a sacred use. How so? This donkey was to bear the spotless lamb. This donkey was to be committed to the sacred use of bringing the spotless lamb of God into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover to be slaughtered for our forgiveness of sins upon the cross. It was a sacred duty that this lamb brought a spotless lamb through his passion. Not just to announce peace, but to give his life to make peace for you and for me. It was a sacred duty that this lamb, this donkey had that day. And how fitting that as he carried the lamb through the city, the crowds cried, Hosanna, which means save now. This king came in triumph, but instead his triumph was through a lowly lamb being led into the temple in verse 11 that he might be slaughtered to do indeed what the crowd demanded, save us. When they cried out, save us, they thought it was to be saved from the Roman oppressors. They thought it was free us politically, give us liberation, make us a glorious people again, make us to shine in glory once more. But Jesus had come to do something much, much more. Perhaps when we 
clamor for salvation, we too want political liberation. Maybe when we cry out for salvation, we're looking for God to restore our glory. Maybe we cry out, make us great again. But don't settle for anything so cheap as that. For Jesus has come to do the far more expensive thing. He has come to do a work that is much, much greater than shining us up once more. Political saviors can't do the work we really need. And that is a change of heart, a change of life. And that's what Jesus, the lowly Savior, has come to do. He's come to save, but it's more than just shining us up on the outside. It's more than political liberation. He's come to make us new. He's come to give us new lives and new hearts to live with Him in eternity forever. And no politician could ever do anything close to that. Don't settle for anything so cheap. But give your life to the One who spent His everything that you might be with Him forever. Jesus was the lowly Lamb that rode into the city to bring behind Him captives of broken and sinful people like me and like you. Not that we would be in chains, but that our chains would be broken. That our guilt would be laid aside. Our shame would be put away. Our enslavement to our sin would fully and finally be broken that we might live in freedom forever. That's why Jesus rode into the city that day. He was a lamb, a lowly lamb coming into the city. But He also, we see in the next section, the next pericope, is that he was a lion who inspects our lives. Verses 12 to 14 tell us a story of Jesus cursing the fig tree, and some critics have labeled this as a moment of Jesus' petulance. He was hungry, and because this tree didn't have any fruit, he cursed it. No matter that it wasn't the season for figs yet, how childish of Jesus to demand something that it wasn't ready to give and then curse it because it couldn't give it. That's really not what was happening here. Instead, what we see is a transformation of the lamb into a lion. As they walked from Bethany to Jerusalem that Monday morning in verse 12, they would have to go over the Mount of Olives. And when you go over the Mount of Olives from Bethany, as you look west, you see the gleaming limestone of the temple standing high above you. The temple mount as it stands today is only one-third as high as it was in Jesus' day. It towered over everything in the landscape and it was made with beautiful white limestone and there was gold all over the temple and it was an impressive sight. All that gold glimmering in the shining spring sun. It was glorious, it was majestic and it gave the people of Israel a great pride. Even in the midst of occupation and oppression, they knew that they had in their midst something special. They were special because the temple belonged to them. Indeed, the temple was special. It was the place of intersection. The temple was the place where heaven and earth came together. The temple was the place where the God of heaven dwelled in the midst of His people. Of course, it must be beautiful and impressive. It was God's very dwelling place in the midst of all of His people. And as Jesus and the twelve came over the Mount of Olives that day and they saw the temple gleaming in the sun in the background... In the foreground, there was a fig tree in leaf. The temple was behind it. The fig tree was in front of them. Now, that season, the season of Passover, would be about five weeks too early for figs to happen and come about on the trees. But fig trees in Israel produce an early fruit. 
They're not quite as sweet. They're small, tiny little fruit. But nevertheless, that small fruit comes. And if a tree is in leaf, it is usually a sign that the early figs would be there. But the leaves are too big. And you can't really see if these tiny little figs, the early figs are on the tree. You have to get close. You have to inspect. You have to look behind the leaves in order to see if the fruit was there. But here's the catch. If you get past all the beautiful and the full leaves and you see that there aren't any early figs, then that was a sign that the tree was diseased. It was in the process of dying. Even though it looks so alive, even though it looks so beautiful and lush and vibrant on the outside, if there wasn't any fruit, it told you that that tree was diseased unto death. It had no real life in it. It was all for show. All those leaves, all that lush beauty was simply there to cover over the barrenness of that tree. So remember where Jesus was. They were standing on the hill looking at the beautiful and gleaming temple in the background. It was a paragon of religion. And it shined with pride of the special status of the ethnic people of the Jews. It, it glimmered with promise. But just like that fig tree, temple religion had come and become barren. The religion that it fostered seemed lush and leafy and productive and fruitful and significant, but in reality, all the glitz simply covered over the barrenness of it all. Because temple religion in that day had become focused on the outside. Things done for show by people whose hearts were committed somewhere else. And it offered no fruit to nourish a spiritually hungry people. But instead it was captured by corruption. And it failed to be what the people truly needed the temple to be. It had failed to be the touch point of heaven and earth. It failed to be the place where the grace of God was heard and felt and experienced through the sacrifices. Instead it was just a shell of what it was supposed to be when the lion came to inspect. It was all for outward show and no heart transformation among the people. You and I have to realize that truly fulfilling and fruitful spiritual life doesn't come through shining things up on the outside. It comes through being connected to the God of the temple. It comes through being relationally connected, having our hearts owned and possessed and and, and having our hearts in His hand by the God who dwelled in the temple. That's where fruitfulness of life comes from. Well, How do I mean that? Sometimes we attempt to shine our lives up and want to look really good for other people, being respectable citizens in our community and think that's the same thing as being faithful and fruitful in Jesus. But it's not. Fruit is only produced when it clings to the vine. So also with you and me. Fruit is only developed in our lives when we are clinging to Jesus Himself rather than trying to shine our lives up and make everyone think that we're great people. True religion, true fruit, true satisfaction in our souls is is experienced through a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're connected to the vine, as we trust Him and abide in Him and pursue Him, then our lives begin to develop fruit can't produce it on the outside and call it a day. Jesus wants something more. He wants our hearts. Just a couple of examples as diagnostic for me and for you here. When your sin is exposed, you get caught doing something. 
and other people see it. What bothers you the most about being caught? Is it the shame that somebody else has seen what you've been doing in secret? Or is your heart bothered the most by a grief that you've seen afresh what you've done to the Savior who gave you His life? Which bothers you more? Is it the shame of being caught, the shame of, oh no, somebody else is going to see what kind of person I am. Oh no, somebody else might know what truly goes on in my heart. Is that the thing that bothers you the most? Or is it, oh my, I have turned aside from so great a salvation that cost God His life for mine. What plagues your soul? The first is simply... Religious image management. It's moralism that will lead us straight to hell. It is the second. Being connected to a vital living relationship with the Lord Jesus who gave himself to us. It is the second that is gospel infused repentance. Is my life or is your life all leaf and no fruit? All show and no substance? Or how about this, when you're bebopping through life and you're feeling really good and everything's easy and happy and comfortable and then something bad happens. Maybe it's an illness, maybe it's a loss of some kind, maybe it's a loss of a job or something worse. And perhaps that loss or that illness exposes that you and I have been living for comfort. We've been living for ease and calling it contentment. But it's not the same thing. We confuse the outside leaf of comfort for the inside fruit of contentment. But they're not the same thing. Contentment is a, is a contentment of our spirit is a fruit that clings to the vine, the Lord Jesus. And He produces it within us without regard to our outward circumstances. That's what true contentment is. Can you see the difference in what Jesus calls us to have? The Lion of Judah has come to you and to me and say, I want more for you than a leafy, lush, and barren life. I want my life to bubble up inside of you as you abide in me and rest in me and trust me and seek me. And as you give me your heart, that's what He wants for us. He doesn't want us to settle for a life of religiosity and keeping up appearances. Jesus wants your heart because He wants to change you. He aims to give us so much more than a spit shine on the outside. He's come to remake us on the inside and satisfy our hungry and our thirsty souls by giving us Himself. Is that what you want? Is that what I want? How does it happen? Well, it happens as the lamb who was lowly in his entry into the city has become the lion who inspects our lives, has become the lamb who took on himself our judgment. In verse 15, Jesus came to the temple to shake out all of the abuse that he found there. You can imagine that for a temple to function in those days, you needed places for animals to be bought and sold. You needed places for temple tax, coins to be changed. But where would all that commerce take place? Well, in those days, in the Mount, on the Mount of Olives, there were four markets that were run by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing authorities. And they provided for a fully functioning temple. They sold pigeons and and lambs and all the things that you would need for sacrifice. They changed coins. 
was run on the Mount of Olives. But Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, and he wanted the priests to get a cut of that money. He didn't want it all to go to the Sanhedrin, to the government. He wanted the priests to get a cut of the money that would come from buying and selling these animals for sacrifice. So Caiaphas, the high priest, had installed in the court of Gentiles, inside the temple, in the place where non-Jews could come and pray and worship, Caiaphas, the priest, had another set of booths set up in the court of Gentiles to sell everything necessary for temple sacrifice. The high priest, the one who was to intercede between God and His people, set up a competing market for the Lord. Can you imagine what that would be like? That place, the court of Gentiles, is where most of us would have to go and worship if we were there in that day. The place where all the non-Jews would go. And if you wanted that place to go and worship, imagine all the sounds and the smells of all those animals in the court of the Gentiles. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says as many as 250,000 lambs were sacrificed during Passover week. Imagine the sounds, imagine the smells, imagine the the haggling over the prices, over the, the bustle of the commerce of half a million extra people come to Jerusalem for Passover, all milling about in the in the court of the Gentiles. And you were there trying to pray and worship. It would be a little bit like trying to go to Walmart on Black Friday morning and trying to have a moment of worship there in the checkout line. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. There's too much going on. There's, there's too much activity. You can't worship there. You begin to see why in verse 17, Jesus said that these priests had turned the temple into a den of robbers. At the priest's instigation, commerce kept people away from God. It had become a den of robbers. The temple, the touch point, the, the intersection of heaven and earth, the place where the very presence of God was supposed to dwell, it had now been turned into a meat market, driven by the greed of the priests and the religious leaders. The very place where the holy presence of God dwelled and where sinful and broken people who were lame could come into the very presence of God and know that their sins were washed away as they gave, gave the sacrifice. They would know that by blood being spilled, then their sins were completely gone and forgotten by a holy God and it was all disrupted by the greed of the religious leaders. It was all show was all a leafy barrenness driven by greed. It had become a den of robbers. And Jesus stopped it. At least for a little while on that day, there wouldn't be any sacrifices in the temple. There would be no more blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. The temple was rendered obsolete in all of its leafy and lush barrenness as Jesus stopped it all. Because the temple no longer functioned as it was supposed to function. But although the temple was obsolete, the presence of God hadn't left His people. For the abiding presence of God with His people, formerly experienced in the Holy of Holies in the temple, had now been birthed in the world through God incarnate, the Lord Jesus. 
The full dwelling place of God with man was no longer in a building, but it was in a person, the Lord Jesus. And He had come into that city, God incarnate, the lowly King, ready for His sacred duty of sacrifice, that sinners like us could be brought into His presence. And He flashed the power of the Lion of Judah to expose our hearts. And now once more, He had become the Lamb to be slain for our guilt. Jesus had come as the true priest to intercede between God and man. He was not only the priest, but He was also the sacrifice that we might be received by a holy God. See, Jesus has given Himself to break the power of our sin and then begin that work of remaking us into a new creation, blameless by His blood and indwelled by His very presence right now in our hearts as we, His people, are the continuing temple. God dwells with us now and His life is to bubble up within us so that we produce His character and His His life and His fruit as He changes us from the inside out to be more like Him. He dwells with us right now. The Lamb came to the temple to give Himself for you and for me that His life might be inside of us. There is no more need for striving and struggling to look good and and try to convince people of this glittering image that we hope everyone believes about us. But instead, the Lion became the Lamb so that we can stop pretending. So that we can stop trying to shine ourselves up for God and pretend that we have no true need for His grace. He came to give us life. An abundant life that transforms us from the inside out. So as you prepare this week to celebrate Easter, ask Jesus to cleanse your heart too. Ask Him to make you no longer satisfied with the hustle and the bustle of religious activity but instead that we would be revived in our hearts and have His life flow within us like a river, that we would be satisfied in Him. It's like Lucy and Edmund found on that grassy place that day. Being fed by the Lamb will satisfy our hungry souls like nothing else in all creation. Everything else is a counterfeit. Only coming to Him will you find the life that you're looking for. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would enable us this week to have our eyes opened that we might clearly see what You have truly done for us. That we might know the fellowship of the Lord Jesus within us by the power of the Spirit. That we might, in our brokenness and even in our barrenness, that we might feel once again and experience once again the life of Christ inside of us. Regardless of our circumstances and our pain and our struggles and our trials, would your life give us life? We ask, O Lord, that we would find a holy discontent at being shiny, happy people. But instead, Lord, may we truly know the fellowship of the Lamb who has come to make us new that we can stop pretending. Give us your life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.